civics, y'all. A political conversation for all of us. You sit back, because guess what? I'm going to take the, um, I will take the wheel for a while, so you can sit back. I have my, um, my, I have a, a mug of mulled wine here right now. It's nice and warm, and Ooh. I have... I have my comfy jammies on and my little Christmas trees are lit because today we are going to be talking about the history of Christmas in America. And also, I'm going to lead off with a tweet that um, the uh, representative from Ohio tweeted on the 4th um, at sort of jump us in and sort of start us off with a civics y'all sort of point here. Representative, Ohio Representative Jim Jordan says, Dr. Fauci says Americans should avoid travel over the holidays. What will he cancel next? Saying Merry Christmas? (laughs) So, my dear friend Emily, we are going to talk about the history of Christmas in America, which actually begins... With the banning of Christmas in America. (laughs) Ironically enough. (laughs) Yes, it does. Okay, so we're going to scoot back over to England for like a little split second here. Um, I'm not going to bog us down with this bit. But um, Oliver Cromwell was like super like Puritan and in 1647 was like, there shall be no more frivolities. And, and and drinking of ale and feasting, and they actually mince pies, which are associated mince, pot, mince pies in, in, in England at, at Christmas were a big thing. And they actually called them idolatry in a crust because <laughs> they were anything frivolous or, like, you know, to, that any sort of frivolity was, was considered a no-no. And that spilled over to New England. Um, the pilgrims completely shunned the holiday in 1620 and the Puritans who arrived later didn't observe it either. And in New England, oh, wait, wait. did they not observe it because they were like, they couldn't find any food? No, they didn't observe it because it was like considered, you know, to, it was, it was, uh, it was idolatry. It was, it was a sin. And um, uh-huh. between 1659 and 1681, if you like, said, you know, happy Christmas, or let's have a flagon of, of ale, or drink, or have a mince pie, you could be fined as much as five shillings. <laughs> so, so guess what? Tea Party Place, who the Tea Party likes to say Merry Christmas, well, guess what? If you said it in Boston between 1659 and 1681, you owed money. And <laughs> so what I'm going to tell you about is like Christmas, then what we think of today, really took hold here in the mid-1800s. It wasn't until 1870 that U.S. Grant declared Christmas Day a national holiday. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you hear the name Washington Irving, what holiday do you usually think about? Halloween. Yeah, the Headless mm-hmm. Horseman, right? Sleepy Hollow? Yeah, Sleepy Hollow. But um, he also wrote, um, he, like, the whole um, uh, the Knickerbockers and all of that writing club and, and those fellas, like, he was sort of, Washington Irving was sort of the um, the the person who kind of was, was well known in that. Um, there were a lot of 
early Dutch settlers um, in this group. And he wrote this book. Uh, it was very fanciful. So it was, it, was, it was based on truth, but also embellished a bit called The History of New York. And um, St. Nicholas was the patron saint of early Dutch settlers. And mm. they practiced a yearly ritual of hanging stockings to receive presents on St. Nicholas Eve, which today is actually St. Nicholas Day, the day we're recording this. Um, oh, yeah. And he would say in his fanciful way that St. Nicholas had a wagon he could ride over the tops of trees where he brought his yearly presents to children. And it's funny, I, I go into like Bing Crosby cadence because he's the one that narrates <laughs> the Disney Legend of Sleepy Hollow, but Der Bengel is, is popular and White Christmas too, so... The Dutch word for Santa Claus okay, turned into Santa Claus, and um, mm. there was a poet uh, and a New York uh, printer named William Gilly who published an anonymous poem. He was the printer, so nobody knew who wrote it, but it, it referred to Santa Claus in a children's book in 1821. So the whole like cart and children and stockings and stuff, that's all early 1800s and good old Washington Irving. Um, so what other writer, when you think of like early Christmas and certain poems, do you think of? Well, I don't, when you say poems, I think my first guess might've been wrong, but I'm, I'm thinking Charles Dickens, right? We'll, uh, we'll get to him. Didn't he, was, okay. <laughs> poems and Christmas. What am I missing? Uh, poems and Christmas. Okay. You're just going to have to tell me. Um, well, uh, it was originally known as a visit from St. Nicholas. Now it's called oh. The Night Before Christmas. Christmas. And its author, Clement Clark Moore, was a professor who owned an estate in Manhattan. And he was familiar with St. Nicholas traditions in New Amsterdam, you know, because of Washington Irving. And his poem, uh, his poem first, <laughs> scratch that, reverse it, too much mulled wine. The poem first. Published um, in a paper in New York on December 23rd in 1823. And when we read it, we hear about Mama and her chimney and the cap and he filled the stockings and all that stuff. But those weren't common traditions then. So um, St. Nicholas Day gifts were on December 5th, but the night before Christmas became Christmas Eve. And he also came up with the whole St. Nick and naming the eight reindeer so like mm. this dude you know we think oh this is a classic tale of christmas eve well no he kind of you know he kind of did a soft reboot of christmas <laughs> <laughs> so um so yeah um so good old uh uh clement clark Moore. so let me let me see so let me get this straight so you're saying our modern christmas is kind of based on loosely uh, through like indirectly on Dutch traditions so far. Yeah. Well, really very much there. And like, there's a little bit of everything, but the Dutch traditions huh. kind of like became Canon, shall we say, <laughs> you know, as far as they became goes, Canon, you know, uh, well, fun facts. Did you know that my last name is actually German, but it was borrowed from the Dutch. Oh. So it's essentially like a, a Dutch word that the German bar, the German language that borrowed. That means what does it mean? Street? State. Oh. It means state. But um, if I remember correctly from what I've heard, um, it, it means the same thing in Dutch. And it's spelled the same way, if I remember correctly. Well, that's really cool. We're going to go to Charles Dickens now because oh, yay. he very much <laughs> came in. He was 
sort of the here we go. We'll call him the Gene Roddenberry if we're going to do these. If we're going to <laughs> his vision uh, changed. So. And everybody, take a sip yeah. of your mulled, mulled wine. wine or Romulan <laughs> ale. Romulan mulled. Anyway, the other great work of Christmas literature of the 19th century was Christmas Carol, of course. Um, he was inspired to write his story after speaking to working people in the industrial city of Manchester, England, in early 1843. Um, and he worked, wrote it very quickly uh, before Christmas in 1843, so that it and it was like just selling crazy. It actually wasn't a lot. A lot of times with these things, it's like, well, there wasn't much commercial success, and then suddenly, but no, people were like picking this up like it was friggin', you know, uh, insert popular literary title here, you know, depending on when you're listening <laughs> to this podcast. Um, so it crossed the Atlantic. And it made it to America by Christmas of 1844. And when Dickens made it, his- it was essentially a cash grab. Yeah, oh, right. It was like he was he was in debt uh-huh. and he needed some quick money, right? Uh huh. And he was talking to the working class at the time. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, he wrote a lot about about you know like chimney sweeps and um, you know working class and status and rich and poor in England at the time, uh, which might be another good discussion of industrial revolutions in American Dickensian times at some point. But um, <laughs> so when Dickens, made his, but it made its way to America. Yes, and by 1867, literally him reading A Christmas Carol was the hottest ticket. So it, mm. and it, so this is a really cool fact. It has never been out of print. A Christmas Carol has never, ever been out of print. And, um, you know, so his readings, it became plays, it's radio dramas, it's stage dramas, it's movies, it's cart- it's animated movies, it's live action, you know, actors. And they made one of those weird uncanny valley, not to yuck anybody's yum if that's your thing, but uh, all kinds of different ones. Um, also, like how we, we see Santa, um, there's an American artist known as Thomas Nast who is essentially credited for having invented the modern depiction. Um, he worked as a magazine illustrator who created campaign posters for Abe Lincoln and was hired by Harper's Weekly in 1862. And um, mm-hmm. he... Wait, campaign posters? Yes, for Abe Lincoln. And Christmas. Like, he created, he created our modern view of Santa Claus, and he was a campaign illustrator. Mm-hmm. It's so... Huh. So not lots of pro- oh there is so much like propaganda and marketing. Christmas is well you will see, but I'm I'm really impressed that you yes yes I love yay active listening. I am so glad you <laughs> noticed that because that's going to come back a bit in, in in a good in not too long. But um, they wanted to do um, Lincoln the it's not. Uh, it's kind of a, a, a legend at this point, but um, legend is that Lincoln requested a depiction of Santa visiting the Union troops. So mm. the resulting cover from Harper's Weekly, which I would like to find this, it's um, from January 3rd, 1863. It shows Santa on his sleigh. He's arrived at a U.S. Army camp festooned with Welcome Santa Claus sign. And his suit has stars and stripes on it. He's distributing presents. One soldier's holding up a new pair of socks, which, you know, it's like great socks, but holy crap, they, they, they would have been really excited for dry socks. And it says Santa Claus in camp. And this was not long after the, the Antietam and Fredericksburg battles, which were just 
awful and rough. And so it's like it was a morale boost. It's like here's Santa Claus coming into camp. And it was so popular that he drew them every year for decades. And he was credited for creating the notion that Santa lived at the North Pole with elves. So hmm. like, so between, so we've got Washington Irving with flies over and stockings. And then Clement Moore with Christmas becoming St. Nick's Day is now Christmas Eve. And now we have this, this artist who has Santa living at the North Pole and there's elves and, you know, so all of this, we're, we're building up this early 20th century uh, version of Santa. And so now we're to 1889 and um, the president, Benjamin Harrison, had the first White House Christmas tree. Um, mm -hmm. His grandchildren decorated the tree with toy soldiers and glass ornaments and some report Franklin Pierce displayed a tree in the 1850s, but they're kind of vague. But Benjamin Harrison's were, were documented in newspapers, and they detailed the lavish presents he was going to give his grandchildren. And um, not all of the subsequent presidents continued, but by the middle of the 20th century, it became uh, just the national Christmas tree became a thing. And then there's one... Mm. Um, uh, the national Christmas tree placed on the ellipse area of the South Lawn of the White House began in 1923. So the presidents, it became, it started off um, again, 1800s, and it was kind of off and on, but now it's a thing. How is the White House going to be decorated? The tree, the first lady sort of takes the helm now. And boy, howdy, there have been some interesting ones the past four years, but, um, you very much think of like Jackie Kennedy or, you know, even Barbara Bush because she was very grandmotherly with her pearls and, you know, some folks in their tree. Um, I'm sure you know of Yes, Virginia, There is a Santa Claus. They, they actually made a movie called Yes, Virginia, There is, is a Santa Claus. But in 1897, an eight-year-old girl wrote to the New York Sun asking because she doubted or her friends doubted there was a Santa Claus. And the editor of the newspaper, Francis Church, responded. And the part that's quoted the most is the second paragraph, quote, Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. He exists as certainly as love and generosity and devotion exist. And you know that they abound and give to your life its highest beauty and joy. Alas, how dreary would be the world if there were no Santa Claus. It would be as dreary as if there were no Virginias, quote. And that's just uh, beautiful. <laughs> and, um... Uh, essentially, it, it's been re that's been reprinted. There's a movie about it. It's quoted in lots of other movies. Um, there was an I'm dating myself here. So my family and I loved Alf, and there was actually a two part, <laughs> one hour long Alf Christmas special. And there was a little girl who had cancer, and the she had asked the doctor, and the doctor read to her from that. So. So, but by the end of the 19th century, essentially all of the components for the modern Christmas from Santa Claus to Scrooge, at this point, electric lights came about. The Industrial Revolution led to electric light and mass-produced toys and mass-produced things. Um, some of the most popular Christmas songs. Christmas tree lights. Yeah, Christmas tree like lights, electric light. You know, I mean, people would put candles, but, you know, uh, the lights, you could, it, it was just... And, and the store windows, you know, department store windows, like the Macy's window and all, and Harrods and, 
in England and in the United States, all of that industrial revolution. So we've gone from, you know, from the, the Puritans saying no Christmas to that changing a bit. And then the 1800s, all of these traditions sort of cementing and becoming, you know, a significant thing. Oh, pardon me. I still have hiccups. Um, but um, so let's World War One. Everybody was doing sort of practical, prudent things, the whole very, you know, sending messages to soldiers, tragic and romantic. And then um, the 20s, really not much changed. But then in the 30s, um, the Great Depression came around and um, toys and dolls were mended by people. And many of the dolls that were made available to underprivileged children through toy lending libraries and they were also WPA work projects, you know, New Deal uh, nursery schools. And they were given out um, through work, work projects, you know, mended toys were given for children to keep. So, and that was around 1935. The U.S. Art, National Archives has some lovely, lovely images that I need to send you to put in the show notes of that. And, um, you know how, like, uh, you, you ever get, like, an orange or an apple or, or hear your grandmother talk about mm-hmm. that for Christmas? Yeah. Yeah, I get, I get oranges usually every year for Christmas. And it's, it's neat and it's nice and, you know, like, nuts and candies. Those were affordable, like treats and stockings, bananas, nuts, certain, like, peppermint candies. Um, if mm-hmm. children were really fortunate at that time, they might, the, the youngest, youngest child might get a handmade, like, toy wagon or a doll. Um, but the Great Depression lasted over 10 years, and 25% of the American labor force was without jobs. And so um, Christmas it became a focus on soup kitchens and feeding the hungry. And, like, whimsical things just weren't a big deal. So gifts were homemade or homegrown. Um, Mothers and grandmothers made dresses and aprons out of flower sacks. And what was really neat was a lot of the flower companies realized that was happening. So they would start, they would print flowers and patterns and like dainty feminine patterns on the flower sacks. And the label could wash out. So it would be like, you know, Pappy O'Donnell's brand flower you know, sorry, you know, the <laughs> Cohen brothers, you know, shout out to Joel and Ethan. But, um, and that, like, the name would fade or you could wash that off. Um, things were knitted. Um, so, you know, very practical. It was like, oh, it's Christmas. I'm going to get a new, you know, apron or gloves or scarf. And, um, socks. yeah, socks. Socks. I love socks. I love getting socks. Uh, it took me a while, but I officially in the oh yay socks or slipper socks place in my life now. <laughs> I think it's a grown up yeah, thing, right? right? To be like oh yay socks. Yes, and like, I'm very practical in my yes. in my like desires for Christmas presents. Well, and that's good, you know. It's like I'm trying to. My mom got me. Well, the weighted blanket things are neat, but last year one of the things she's like, "What do you want?" And I said, "I want a garlic press," and I love my garlic press. <laughs> So I don't care if if, if I, I was I, the joy I, I received from it is very much there, you know. But um, decorations in the twenties were like uh, hand carved things or candles or paper ornaments, and um, it's funny because the routine from the depression actually is kind of a lot like we do things now. 
um, if you get up and open presents, and then um, lots of people go to church, and then you go to a relative's house for dinner. And the men would sit around and play cards, mm-hmm. and of course the women would, you know, combine food they brought or cooked, and um, like chicken being the main course, and the kids played, and then you know you go visiting, and everybody would sort of contribute so that out of instead of like one family making all of the food, the whole we're going to Mima's house, you know, and I'm bringing the the you know green bean casserole that was born from everybody hitching up their mule drawn wagon or walking to their, their family's house or friends, if you know, and, and mm-hmm. essentially contributing because each family could provide one thing and everybody could eat together, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it was very much, you know, that, and then we're going to move on to world war two. Um, and what's interesting is wartime income was really high at that point. Everybody had jobs, you know, we were, you know, everybody was, we were making stuff, but the manufacturer items, there were raw material shortage because of the military using things. Um, clothing mm-hmm. wasn't rationed, but restri- restrictions did apply. Um, so there was even by 44, a severe shortage um, of paper that reduced supply of books. And mm-hmm. there was a real like scarcity of toys for children. Um, so they switched mm-hmm. uh, to wood and cardboard and to new plastics. Um, popular World mm. War II toys were dolls and wooden jeeps and airplanes and build-a-sets, which allowed children to construct cardboard play sets, but they mostly had military themes because, you know. Um, and then, of course, buy war bonds. War bonds were a good Christmas present. And then also food rationing. You know, people, it's so funny because everybody who's like, you know, World War II and we fought together and patriotism and America, but food was rationed. You had to ration things. There were rations of sugar and butter and meat, including ham, was rationed. Turkey was not rationed, though. So armed services worked hard to provide turkey dinners for overseas people. And that meant actually fewer turkeys on the home front. But, you know, it was, you know, for overseas because Turkey wasn't wasn't rationed and holiday gasoline was was rationed. So civilians were discouraged um, from train travel. So um, and at the time, uh, also outdoor Christmas lights uh, was actually also a first like one of the first wartime casualties. Uh, so because there were blackout conditions on the West Coast and dim outs on the East Coast, because, you know, while. Obviously, there were full blackouts in, in England, you know, during the Blitz because of, of the attack on Pearl Harbor. They were, you know, blackout conditions on the West Coast. Uh, and Christmas trees were harder to get, too. But music made up for it, girl, because White Christmas was recorded in 1942. Sold, uh, I mean, since it sold over 50 million copies. And then the song I'll Be Home for Christmas because everybody mm-hmm. loves a melancholy, you know, it's only in my dreams. You know, it's wistful and everybody, everybody feels that, you know, everybody was vibing to, like the kids say, everybody was vibing to I'll be home for Christmas. <laughs> because even if their their fellows were overseas, they couldn't go travel because of gasoline shortages. And they were soft mm-hmm. and melancholy and wistful for tradition. And there was an optimistic hope. And why is this feeling like 
now. Yeah, pretty much. It's kind of feeling like now a little bit, isn't it? A little. Like we're kind of having to sort of yes. recreate sort of our traditions because because of limitations. Oh, absolutely. Um, and then, you know, like what, what do we have and what can we see? And call, Christmas cards were sent. Everybody, the mail was just absolutely, you know, the – the uh, postal workers were, you know, and then as of now, the important folks carrying those parcels, you know, and sending mail overseas and hoping to get there, even if, even if mom's, you know, pound cake was stale, you know, and if, if, if it makes it to, you know, a foxhole in, in, in France at some point, it's still loved, you know, because it's from home. But then the war ended, mm-hmm. of course, and then there was this huge, you know, all the booms, from 46 to 64 <laughs> and boy did the they celebrate boomers. oh my gosh like they uh these sumptuous christmases were staged all of these food uh films and foods and toys and television programs literally became the what we consider you know a lot of well, our parents because they were the boomers and um like uh, once we used to rely on Germany for ornaments, toys, and most of Christmas customs, America became self-sufficient in the post-war years because um, of the, you know, manufacturing. And we could switch to making, you know, plain things to, you know, making ornaments and toys. Um, American mm-hmm. Christmas customs and traditions such as visiting department store Santas and letter writing to the North Pole remain intact during the post-war years, but the era generated contributions like NORAD's tracking of Santa was initiated in 1955, mm-hmm. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, How the Grinch Sold Christmas, those came out in 1957. Um, was the NORAD thing an accident at first? You know, I, I, I forgot. I should have looked at it. It kind of was, and I forgot the exact. I should have looked that up. But there was so much other stuff that I need to get to that I just – we we need to go. Maybe we, I need to look that up and and do a postscript on that. But like the Grinch, all those Rankin Bass specials, um, the first White House Christmas card, the first Christmas postage stamp, the first opera composed mm-hmm. for television, which was a Mom and Night Visitors, and it was actually uh, Fred Rogers was a part of that because it was an operetta and it was done in Pittsburgh, and that was when television was taking off. So Mr. Fred Rogers himself was involved in that. The very first basketball game on Christmas Day and the first Elvis Presley Christmas album and Candyland, Mr. Potato Head and Barbie, all of that came out. And Rudolph, uh, a copyright editor named Robert May, created Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer in 1939 to lure shoppers into Montgomery Ward's department store. And um, Frosty the Snowman was actually – Frosty's been used to shill a lot of booze, Emily. Um, he, a whiskey maker in 1890 used him once prohibition ended, uh, the chain smoking snowman appeared, the go-to guy for alcohol ads appeared on Miller beer, Jack Daniels, Rheingold, <laughs> Schlitz, Schindley, Ortel's lager beer, Chivas Regal Scotch, Fort Pitt Pale Ale, and Four Roses, which is a bourbon, which is very good. <laughs> I didn't realize Frosty was such like an adult Christmas what? character. <laughs> He's always saying happy birthday. I don't know. But, um, or at least he did in the Rankin Bass special. But, um, but so now we've, we've kind of come to uh, where we think of the war on Christmas. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. We're back to the war on Christmas. Um, it was actually even an official plank of the Republican party 
in 2016. You know, him, Donald Trump said he was going to bring it back. And, um, Mm -hmm. like, essentially at kind of 2004, Bill O'Reilly sort of, like, rang the alarm bell on the war on Christmas. And this is taking... Well, can I just pause you real quick? Had Christmas actually gone anywhere, even in in any way whatsoever? Like... like, was there any move to, like, you know, back? secularize? Like, we did? We pulled we'll back? See. I so, okay. sit tight there, sis, because we're going to get there. <laughs> I, I, we're, we're, we're going there. I'm so glad. Yay. You were just, I could just, apparently, yeah, I'm, I'm not good at just there. sitting by and listening. <laughs> well, okay. So, this is what, what, what he, Bill O'Reilly said in the broadcast in 2004 quote, All over the country, Christmas is taking flat. In Denver this past weekend, no religious floats were permitted in the holiday parade. In New York City, Major Bloomberg unveiled the holiday tree and no Christmas. Christian symbols are allowed in public schools. Federal department stores, Macy's, have done away with Christmas greeting Merry Christmas. Now all of this anti-Christian stuff is absurd and may be a bias situation. But the real reason it's happening has a little to do with Christmas and everything to do with organized religion. Secular progressives realize that America is it is now will never approve of gay marriage, partial birth, abortion, euthanasia, legalized drugs, income redistribution through taxation, and many other progressive visions because of religious oppression. But if the secularists can destroy religion in a public arena, the brave new progressive world is a possibility. That's what happened in Canada. Quote. So um, guess what? Bill O'Reilly. Yes. <laughs> so let me tell you, uh, this started as far back as the twenties with, um, with, um, good old, um, uh, Henry Ford in his book, the international Jew. So, um, Henry Ford had a series of pamphlets in the twenties collected under the international Jew, the world's foremost problem, accusing American Jews of among countless other crimes trying to abolish Christmas celebrations in public places. Quote, Not only mm. do the Jews disagree with Christian teaching, which is their perfect right and no one dare question it, but they seek to interfere with it. It's not religious tolerance in the midst of religious difference, but religious attack that they preach and practice. The whole record of Jewish opposition to Christmas, Easter, and certain patriotic songs show that. Quote, so patriotic songs connecting patriotic songs to religious holidays. Yep. Wow. So that's like, that's a drawing a direct line between being patriotic and being Christian, essentially. Uh-huh. So, mm. um, let me find, sorry. Uh, there is this insane thing that was in the fifties. The so there's something called the John Birch society. In 1959, they released a pamphlet called There Goes Christmas, in which they claimed that there was a new communist plot. Now we're getting into Red Scare territory to, quote, take the Christ out of Christmas by replacing Christmas decorations with United Nations iconography. The society claimed that former part of the larger push to stamp out religion altogether and cede U.S. sovereignty to the U.N. They urged members to boycott stores with appropriate decorations. Um, the John Bell Society itself developed the idea of a war on Christmas from the interwar anti-Semitic publications, such as Henry Ford's The International Jew. 
detecting a part of a supposed move to take over the world. They claimed that Jews were launching a war on Christianity, with one paper lamenting, last Christmas, more people had a hard time finding Christmas cards than they did to commemorate birthdays. This was, of course, seen as a plot by Jewish conspirators who consider, quote, any public expression of Christian characters being derogatory to their religion, close quote. So does this sound familiar? Hmm. Yikes. Yeah. So let's get into the civil rights and anti-war movements of the 60s led to the 70s of 80s, which saw a shift toward a greater uh, recognition of a sensitivity toward Americans' growing ethnic and religious diversity. So we're getting into, like, a cultural change in public schools. Um, So there are a lot of court rulings reaffirming the separation of church and state, mandating non-preferential treatment of religion in the classroom. Um, Let me see... Like, the the Supreme Court was, like, the whole Ten Commandments in public schools being unconstitutional in public spaces thing. Um, In 1985, Mm -hmm. Alabama's Moment of Silence statute was unconstitutionally biased in favor of prayer. In 1987, a ruling disallowed the teaching of creation science. And apropos... (laughs) Except in the South. (laughs) The court decided in 1989 in Allegheny County versus the ACLU that it was unconstitutional to erect an activity seen on public property. So even though these things are very much, you know, these are constitutional First Amendment, you know, separation of church and state. You can practice your religion, but not make everybody else practice it. Like you do your thing in your house. Mm-hmm. I do my thing in my house. And, you know, we're allowed to do these things in our houses. But if, you know, if we're talking about school or you know, Ten Commandments outside of a courthouse, which, by the way, I learned recently that a lot of the Ten Commandments statues in public places were actually publicity for the Cecil B. DeMille movie, The Ten Commandments, starring Charlton Heston. And, like, hundreds of Ten Commandments <laughs> statues were erected, and he and Charlton Heston would go out. <laughs> so, basically, it's like they, it was a publicity stunt, and then they forgot about it and, and like, got, was like, oh, this is a religious, like, freedom that we have. We have to maintain the statue. <laughs> the bottom, it's like, it's almost like a Simpsons bit. You expect at the bottom to be like, copyright, whatever studio, you know, or property of, you know, studio here, you know. So, but, um, well, go ahead. Uh, well, I, yeah, I was just going to say, like, this whole separation of church and state thing is, is really interesting because I think that's part of, like, what led to – my mom was just referencing this in a conversation um, about how in the South you don't talk about religion or politics, right? Like, how it just kind of isn't done, you know? And, you know, I won't tell you the context of the conversation. She wasn't telling me not to talk about politics or religion, but it was just sort of a reference to something else. But – maybe that's what it was like, you know, like this idea of like, Oh, well, if you want us to separate church and state, if you want us to like, you know, maintain our religion at home and not in public, then, then everyone maybe got a little wary or, or maybe it was used as a way of making people wary of just, of challenging sort of religious practices in our government mm-hmm. that were Christian in origin. And, you know, because if you bring up like a, Hey, but maybe we shouldn't say under God in the pledge of allegiance, like in public schools, then everyone's well, like, well, we shouldn't that talk was about added. That was actually <laughs> added. The, the pledge of allegiance was used to sell magazines and it was brought out like in flags mm-hmm. during the 1893 Chicago world's fair. And the wording changed actually the under God was added later, but we will, um, we will, we will talk about that. Um, 
I'm seeing a thorough line though in mm-hmm. all of this. It sounds like between the Charlton Heston, you know, like the the Ten Commandment movie, between Christian, uh, like so Christmas as it sort of originated, between you know the Under God and the Pledge of Allegiance, and the Pledge of Allegiance being written as like you know a magazine advertisement. There, basically, all of these things were initiated by you know by ad and copywriters mm-hmm. essentially or mm-hmm. you know by marketing mm-hmm. team <laughs> so like there the evidence suggests there's no actual conspiracy to erase christmas um it just goes hand in hand with the belief that the united states is like a fundamentally those people who believe that it is a fundamentally christian nation whose social fabric is weakened or torn by religious diversity or secularism and the fear that it's mm-hmm. under attack has been reoccurring and almost cyclical and it flares up over anxieties about immigration or secularization. And, you know, since the founding, there's never been like, well, there was the law preventing it, you know, out at the beginning. And then by 18, you know, 70, it was a, a holiday. But, you know, at first it, it actually was verboten. So, you know, mm-hmm. it was it was banned by Puritans. But after that, there's no, there's never been a law after that initial whatever that you can't celebrate it in your church, in your home, in your way. So it's just kind of like, you know, it it brings it up. You know, we'd be remiss not to point out, like I said at the beginning, that the only time Christmas was actually banned was, you know, on, by Christians. But to sort of sum up, Christmas has like always been this partially commercial and then also religious and then also practical and emotional, you know, thing, this amalgam of like traditions become based on, Oh, this is the way we've always done this, but who did it before? Oh, well, this guy who wrote this thing or created, you know, frosty selling beer and go to Montgomery Ward because of Rudolph. And, you know, they actually recently, it's funny because the, the Charlie Brown, specials uh didn't air on 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 network television like they usually do because of a contract i guess the charles schultz family or the uh the company because um his it was apple tv had the rights and boy mm-hmm. people ended up me a little bit too i'm like i can't watch the great pope kid on, on abc i'm sorry i've been watching too many <laughs> like laurel and hardy shorts going into stand. Yeah, but if I remember correctly, you guys have a hard copy, we, right? Like you have yes, it on DVD. We do. But PBS kind of just as you like PBS came through and like they're showing all the, the Charlie Brown specials on PBS. So is that the that's the end of your, your Christmas story? Yes. Can I ask questions? By now? all means. Hopefully I can answer them. Goodness. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, you can answer these questions because basically I was gonna say, well well, do you want to tell the listeners, um, why you're where this sort of originated like why you wanted to talk about sort of like you know the history of christmas i just like wanted to search the history of 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 um of american christmas celebrations um you know it's very much well that's funny i um i the letter to my dad will actually answer as i swear you set me up every time just beautifully um <laughs> i um I wanted to do sort of an examination of, of, of Christmas. It's sort of the, the Charlie Brown Christmas special where he's like, I feel like Christmas is commercial and I don't know what Christmas is all about. Can anybody tell me what Christmas is all about? Well, I kind of wanted, I kind of wanted someone to be Linus. And then also, I guess myself be the Linus with, you know, with, with talking about it because my father um, who's passed away was a minister 
and he was a Methodist minister. And Christmas was always, you know, as a kid, my my one of my favorite times of year, and he loved it. And you know, it's it's that from from the Gospels and. And, you know, we had, we had both in my family. It was both a religious experience and we went to church and the Advent was exciting at the Advent calendar and the Advent, everybody's like Advent calendar and chocolates, but there's an Advent wreath and it's the, the Sundays before Christmas and the, the proclamation that a child will be born and then the, the birth of a child and then those who came to, to see the child. I could have gone back further to like Saturnalia and like when the Roman, you know, Christianity, like the origins of Christianity and how there were all these celebrations, you know, before and the, it was a dark time of the year. So there were candles and lights and Saturnalia and, you know, they kind of said, okay, here are these celebrations, the, you know, these pagan celebrations that greenery and lights and celebrations, let's just change this a little bit to reflect, you know, this celebration, you know, let's, again, with the reboot <laughs> or, you know, change it a bit. Uh, but, you know, that's, it, it, I could have, it would have been many, many pages. This was like 18 pages to begin with. So, but I just wanted to look <laughs> since this is, since America and, you know, civics and like what, what the, the, the whole war on Christmas thing, you know, I, I worked for, for, for a very large commercial coffee company uh, for many years. <laughs> and I, you know, enjoyed my time there. I don't work there anymore, but boy, howdy, every year it was, well, let's see who's going to have a new hot take of what the cups look like, you know, or what's going to happen mm -hmm. here. And then it became, you know, and like literally, were they somehow embroiled? Were they somehow embroiled in that happy holidays thing where people are like, what? You can't say well, Merry we, Christmas and anymore. And we always have Merry you Christmas. Know? Nobody in South Louisiana, you know, I mean, you know, I'm not going to be like, you know, you know, happy Cthulhu-mas. I don't know. Or like, I mean, of course, on the 23rd, like happy Festivus, you know, or something silly. But, you know, or we put like Christmas Kwanzaa Hanukkah on things or, you know, all the things. It's I, I don't know. It was never one of those things where I have never in my life felt like I couldn't say Merry Christmas. I love Christmas. I love the the, the secular and the religious parts of Christmas. So I just kind of wanted to look mm -hmm. at those things and kind of look at them a little cl closely and then also stand for macro and micro examinations, I suppose, is why I wanted to do this. And and uh, the whole, I mean, still seriously, like as of a few days ago, what, we can't say Merry Christmas anymore? You know, again, mm -hmm. it's like, no, that's never been a, you know, well, it was a thing back in the day when we for the Puritans that came here before, the, but it's not now. It hasn't been. Very we've been, we've been so bad at remembering our own history um, as Americans. I'd say. I mean, maybe it's a human thing, but I think particularly it's it's like Americans are particularly bad at remembering our own history and learning the lessons of our history instead of just kind of falling into these like cycles over and over and over again and doing the same thing. You know, um, it's like, well, we, we've been here before. We did this before, you know, um, going back to that tweet that you read at the beginning of all of this, you know, like, what will they ban next Christmas? And it's just like, no, you know, there's a difference between like Christmas doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be something that like is mandatory for for every single person as a patriotic American. And we need to, and we need to make a very clear like distinction between 
you know, patriotism and, and, and Christianity are not, they, they're not this, they're not equal. You know, those, that's a false dichotomy being like, you have to in, endorse and espouse Christian feeling in order to be a patriotic American. And we, we've got to take a real hard look at that, you know, about how there's this sort of like, you know, and I think that I have sort of without unconsciously kind of, you know, like I, I was probably an adult and, or in college before I realized that not everybody celebrated Christmas, you know, and I know pe- even people who aren't Christian celebrate Christmas often because there are the days that you have off and, you know, in America or because they like, they like some of the traditions of the holiday. Um, but, you know, it, yeah, I think we just need to take a good hard look at how, you know, we've woven Christianity so deeply into like the fabric of, of America that it has become almost a, a bit of a, um, a burden on other people to sort of prove their Christianity as a way of proving their love for America. Mm-hmm. You know, like all of the stuff that we did, you know, like we, I say like, just sort of like the, the public did and like the press did sort of like, or, and Trump did demanding, you know, like sort of like that uh, President Obama sort of account for his Christianity, you know, as if, that was the only answer. Like, you know, you prove that you're not Muslim, prove that you're Christian. And it's like, well, what if he is Muslim? I mean, like, like, so like, like, why would that be? Why would that be so wrong? It's because we've associated Christianity with patriotism and with America. And I think we have to be pretty clear about, about that as a society. Mm-hmm. And I'm about to be burned at the stake now, aren't no. I? <laughs> They come after you and not you. It's okay. I just like, for me, this was, no, I mean, there's, it shouldn't be anything. I mean, if you become the persecute, if, uh, you know, you, you don't persecute people. That That's the whole point of, of the message of hope is to, that this person came this way to bring, bring hope and to feed hungry and to take care of people and to say we should all take care of each other and love our neighbor and be kind and you know that's you know years down the road after his birth he's going to bring that message so i it shouldn't be a you know prosecuting or persecuting thing but Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's just, I'm fascinated by how much of it came from the eight, like all of these things that we do came out of the, the 19th century. It's just amazing how many of yeah. these things. I mean, obviously the things that our parents were like this associate with their childhood, you know, the Rankin Bass and Rudolph and, you know, all of the, the Charlie Brown and the Grinch and all of those things, you know. And then like, I'm trying to think for me, I guess, well, Mickey's Christmas Carol. I actually got to go see that in theaters. Um, it was shown as a double feature because it wasn't a full-length animated movie uh, with the rescuers, mm-hmm. and I remember seeing that. It was one of my very first movies in, in theaters, and um, I don't know. Like, I guess um, well, everybody, Nightmare Before Christmas and the Santa Claus later, but I'm trying to think of the 80s, <laughs> the, the Star Wars holiday special. <laughs> well, the 80s would have been like Die Hard, right? <laughs> I've been trying to go and get to my storage unit to get my Christmas tree so that I could put it up and decorate it because I feel like I'll feel like a real sense of sort of like 
the, the end of the year and like the season of itself and sort of like that sort of rest and sort of reflection that I think happens a lot at the end of the year, at least for me, I mean, my birthday's um, really quickly into the new year. And so like this whole season starting from around right now to my birthday, this lat, this, this mm-hmm. month, you know, of, of the end of the year and the beginning of the year is like kind of a special period of time for me. And I really, I really appreciate you sort of like taking us on this journey through, through Christmas. Um, and I know, I know I'm like kind of bitter and sometimes a little uh, sardonic about, about Christianity and all of that stuff. But of course, just like you and a lot of people, I have a lot of nostalgia for, for Christmas and Christmas memories oh. and, and all of that stuff. So this has been a very special episode and I'm glad that you wanted to do this. Oh, thank you. I'm glad I did I, that you encouraged me. So, so cheers. <laughs> okay. So. Yes. Cheers. Um, I don't have any more tea left, but clink with your mold wine. If you've got, yes, I'll do the sound effect here. (laughs) Clink.